passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. somebody who's new. It's good to have you here at Crosswinds. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors, and we as a church are studying our way through the book of 1 Samuel. <clears throat> we are actually in 1 Samuel chapter 23 this morning. So if you need to get your Bibles out, do that. If you need to get your outlines out, feel free to do that at this time. While you're doing that, let me just give you a little bit of background to catch you up on what has been going on in this book. It's especially true if you're a visitor with us, just to get you up to the speed with things. We've reached the point in the book where it's become very apparent to David that Saul is intent on taking his life. David realizes that he is now a completely wanted man, and he has left. He's on the run. And at first when he went on the run, he tried to trust in himself and his own wisdom to save his life. He tried lying to save his life, lying to the prophets at Nob, and then he thought he'd try some worldly strength. He was, if I could just get a hold of Goliath's sword, like that's the biggest one, that's the best one, Goliath's sword will save me. And then he had this really crazy idea, if I hide amongst the Philistines, Saul will never look for me there. Well, he quickly learned that his plans to save himself were all worthless, every single one of them backfired. The lies he told to the priests at Nob ended up being used by Saul as one of the reasons for slaughtering all of the priests at Nob. So Saul, or David's hand, had part of that. That sword didn't protect him at all. He was quickly captured when he went to the Philistines, and they didn't help him. In fact, they arrested him, they tormented him, they put him on the city gate, and he was literally within inches of death in his life. And there when he reached the absolute bottom of his world, as he finally repented of lying, trying to rely on himself, and he called out to God. And God heard his prayers. And God answered his prayers. And God enabled the situations to work out that he was able to set, be set free. And then he went and he ran to the, what was called the caves of Adalem. And there, by himself, he hid in a hole in the ground because that was the only place he could protect himself. And he called out to God, and we saw at that time that he actually wrote some psalms that are in our Bibles. And in one of those psalms, he says, God, you will have to fulfill your purpose for me. I can't do it. I can't make your purpose happen. It's all up to you. I give up. And finally, when he put his hands down and just relied on God, that God's hand began to move. We saw at that time how God sent his family to encourage him and be around him his brothers to be with him. Then one by one, they started showing up. Men, men that were sort of the rejects, men who were uh, people who were losers, people who had had really difficult times in life. About 400 men showed up around him to be a little militia for, for some protection. Then uh, David went, moved over to a different country, went to the country of Moab, and there he was able to be in a fortress, and he had some safety, he had some peace, he had some security. Men around him, the stability of the fortress, he's away from Saul in another country. And then the prophet Gad came to him and said what he was afraid of hearing. The prophet said, God has said, go back to your country and face your destiny. Now he knew if he returned to that the land of Israel, that Saul would be hunting for him and continuing trying to kill him. But he obeyed God's word. 
And he returned to the land of Israel. And we left, left off. He was there hiding in the forest of Hereth. Last week, the, the camera left David and it moved up north to Mount Gibeah. And there was Saul. Saul had called Ahimelech, the chief priest, and his whole priestly family, all the other priests, to him. And, and he accused of Ahimelech uh, and the priests of being involved in a conspiracy, a coup to assassinate him and to have a coup and overthrow him. None of that was true. Saul was all making it up in his head. He was just a paranoid, delusional man. But he decided to kill Ahimelech, the high priest, and the other priests, killing every last one of them, leaving blood all over the palace. Eighty-five men slaughtered. But we saw that God in his amazing providence allowed one of those young men to escape, a young man named Ahimelech. Ahimelech, excuse me, excuse me, a young man named Abiathar. Sometimes I get those names get mixed up in my head. After I say them, I realize that. Abiathar. And Ahimelech was his father. And he ran for safety to David. And that's where we found him. Now, this morning, as we go to the next chapter, 1 Samuel 23, we're going to pick up the story as the camera goes back from Saul back to David. And as we expect, it's Saul chasing David once again. And David is on the run. And it's a high-stakes game of hide-and-seek. David's doing the hiding. Saul's doing the seeking. The problem is if Saul finds him, David and his men will all die. This morning, we're going to see, why did God bring David back to the land of Israel? Why did God allow David to go through this incredibly stressful time? this incredibly difficult time where he was constantly running in fear of his life. But we're not going to find out just why God allowed David to go through those difficult times. We're going to find out why God allows us to go through difficult times. Why does he allow super stressful times into our life? We're also going to see how God supported and sustained David in these very trying times. And we'll see how God supports and sustains us in our difficult and trying times as well when we're going through life and death circumstances. So if you're somebody who's either in a hard time right now, an extremely stressful time, or you've been through extremely stressful times in your life, you need to know this message is for you. What God says in his word today is something that you need to hear. So let's begin on the top of your outline. The first thing we see is God cares for his people in difficulty by hearing and answering their prayers. Now, what took place or what takes place right now is we'll see immediately after Saul has killed all the priests of Nob. So while Saul is busy killing God's people, let's see what God, David is busy doing. Now, they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, I mean, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines. Uh, Keilah is a border town in Judah, sort of in the, the western quarter of Judah. It's two miles south of Adalam, which are the caves that David hid in. Let me show you a map of where um, Keilah is. You can see Hereth is right there, which is the forest of Hereth, where David is hiding. Keilah is just over there, right next to it. 
the Philistines were robbing the threshing floors of this city, which means it was harvest season. Now, farmers, I want to ask you, if somebody came right after you had finished at harvesting your corn and harvesting your soybeans and took all of your corn, took all of your soybeans, how long would you last? Like maybe one season and that's it? To take all of your resources and all of your money and your crops? Now, for Kila, this wasn't just the financial side of it. it. This food was the stuff that the people of the city lived on. This would result in the city facing starvation and economic annihilation. And David sees this happening not far from where he's in hiding. And he's like, man, I want to help. I want to do something. So let me ask God about it. God, what do you want me to do? And God says, go attack the Philistines and save the city. Now, there's a bit of irony here. Remember Saul when he was initially anointed king? In 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6, it says he was anointed king and his job was to save the Israelites from the Philistines. But while Keilah, the Israelite city, is being attacked by the Philistines, is Saul doing his job? No. He's consumed with his pet conspiracy theories and all kinds of other pet projects. He's ignoring one of the primary duties he has as a king. And here is David going to be taking up the primary duties of the king, which is to save God's people from the Philistines. And I thought, isn't this the way it happens when politicians go bad? Instead of taking care of their primary responsibility, which is to save the people and to serve the people and to protect the people, they get involved on their pet projects that don't make a hill of beans. Isn't that true? Nothing has changed. And so this is exactly what Saul is doing in his pet project to go kill David, which because he thinks he's going to kill him. Conspiracy theories. Another thing I'd like to point out for you here, it's pretty important. This is the first time we hear of David somehow hearing directly from God. He asks God, you know, what should I do about this? And God says, go attack the Philistines and save the city. How is David hearing from God at this point? What has changed? Well, I'm not going to tell you the answer yet, but as we continue to work our way through the text, we'll find that there's a major change that has happened in David's life. And it's essentially the, the big point of these first 13 verses. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the, Philistine, the army of the Philistines? Now, this seems like a very reasonable response. I mean, David, there's 400 of us. We're misfits. We're rejects. We're the nobodies that nobody wants. We are not trained soldiers. We're just trying to survive up here in the hills and make sure Saul doesn't get us. And you're trying to tell us you want us to come out of the hills and go against the trained and well-equipped Philistine army and take them on? Uh, I want to remind you of a couple things. The Philistines, as we know from earlier in our studies, they had metalworking. 
and they had worked hard to keep the idea of refining metal away from the Israelites. We saw this earlier where the Philistines, like, like they had spears, they had javelins, they had swords, they had body armor, they had metal chariots. The Israelites, they have sticks, they have stones and leather straps to throw little rocks at people. So what we find is the Israelites, like David, are massively outgunned because the Philistines have a ton of modern warfare equipment. And it's not an equal size issue either. 400 of David's men in the militia versus the entire Philistine army. This does not look good. And on paper, this looks like a complete and total defeat. So what we see what David does. Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. It can't get any clearer than this. David, get up, I'm telling you, go attack the Philistines. I will give them into your hands. Now as I thought about this during the week, this sounds like something we saw earlier in this book. Remember David and Goliath? David, a young boy with five smooth stones and a leather strap. Goliath, a Philistine, nine foot, six inch tall, covered in metal body armor and all kinds of swords and spears and shields and all that stuff. Yet David knew that God had promised that his people would be victorious in their battles against the Philistines. It was a matter of who would have faith to trust God would keep his promise and who would step forward and actually fight Goliath. David was the only one who had faith in that day and God kept his word. Folks, this is the same thing going on except it's now not just David versus one Philistine. It's David and his men versus many Philistines. Will God keep his word? You study this in Hebrew, it's interesting, where it says here, at the very end, arise, go to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. In the Hebrew, the I here is in the emphatic tense. God is underscoring it. You are not the ones who are gonna be able to beat the Philistines, but I can and I'm the one who's going to give them into your hands. And here as I was writing, this struck me. You know, there's a close connection between the commands of God and the promises of God. If God commands something, he often follows it up with a promise that will always prove true. That's not just true for David, but that's true for us as well. God makes commands for us and he gives us promises that he will fill for us. Like for instance, remember this one? Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. (laughs) I know for some of you, you hear that and you're like, you don't know my parents. You don't know how difficult they are, how irritable they are, how much they irritated us when we were children. You want me to honor them, to go out of my way to help them, to serve them? God says, honor your father and mother, and I will promise it will go well with you. Didn't say a promise it will go easy with you, but he promises it will go well. 
Do you believe it? Will God keep his word? Will you have faith to obey? Now, this is also true when you come to the area of economics and when you come to the area of giving. Now, I believe that as Christians, our primary place of giving should be our local church family. And we should also give beyond our local church family to other Christians and other ministries and other works. But I think that, you know, worship of God with our resources starts at home and then it goes beyond the home. I like to think of it this way. If there's a family that's not close to you that needs some food, it's good to sacrifice to provide them with food. But that doesn't mean you should neglect your own children. You got to start your home and then you move beyond home when it comes to giving. Now this idea of God giving us commands about giving and promises that go with our giving, one of the best places to look for that is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, which talks about finances. Here's the command. Each one must give, this is talking financially by the way, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When it comes to the resources we give to God's work and God's church, we don't give reluctantly. We don't give under compulsion because we have to. We give because we want to. We give joyfully and cheerfully. And the more we love Jesus, the more generous our giving will be to Jesus. It's just a natural response. You put your money where your heart is. Isn't that true? <laughs> so the thing is, when we give, the scriptures say there's a promise that goes with it when we give to the Lord. It's in the next verse. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. When we give to the Lord's work, God promises that we will always have all sufficiency in all things at all times. God promises to provide for our needs. Now, many times I talk to people and say, well, I can't give to God's work, either locally to my own church or beyond my own church, because I just don't have enough money. I mean, I'm so short on my resources. But do you believe God will keep his promise? Pray and give what you believe God is leading you to give, but know that when we do that, God will keep his promise to provide for your needs. It's not a matter of we don't have enough finances. It's a matter of we don't have enough faith. We don't believe that God will keep his promises. But this is the same challenge right in front of David and his men at this moment, isn't it? Do you believe that I will keep my word, that I will deliver this massive Philistine army into your hands, even though you're a bunch of pipsqueaks with massively inferior weapons and numbers. And here's what we find happens. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock, and here's the key, struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Folks, it wasn't even a close battle. God enabled them to be destroyed. Now, what struck me as I was writing at this point and thinking, what a reminder. You know, God gives us commands in his word, 
Sometimes those commands don't seem to make sense. Sometimes they seem to be hard to do. But when we obey his word, doesn't God always work things out? Isn't that the way it always works? Now, in our culture today, we live in a very sexually promiscuous culture. If you're a young adult, I mean, isn't everybody doing it? Isn't everybody sleeping around? Look at all the movies, talk to all your friends. That's what everyone's out doing nowadays. But yet the scripture says something very different. Ephesians chapter five, verse three. But sexual immorality, by the way, sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea. It's a junk drawer term referring to any sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Or 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In Hebrews 13 verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. If you're a young adult, I'm telling you, save your sexuality for your wedding night. That is God's plan for you. It's not because he hates you. It is because he passionately loves you. And it's because he wants what is best for you. God is not trying to take away your life. He is trying to give you the absolute best life. I have never talked to a couple when I'm doing a wedding and one guy says, boy, am I thankful I slept around before now. It will make my marriage so much better. It's always, I wish I had saved myself for now. It would make my wedding so much better. Now, some of you, when you hear this, you'll say, oh, Kurt is such a meanie. Kurt is such a bully. Look, I always feel depressed by his sermons. He's such a hard preacher. These are not my words. These are God's words to you because he loves you and wants what is best for you. Understand that. Don't look at me. The issue is with God who cares. So what do you do if you find yourself today in the situation where you and your boyfriend or, or girlfriend are sleeping together? Well, the issue is repent. If you should get married, get married. And don't repent a year or two from now. Repent right now. It's like if you're doing something wrong, why keep doing something wrong for another year or two? It's like straighten it out right away. And if you're sleeping with somebody that you know is not going to be your future spouse, break up. You know why? Because God cannot bring Mr. or Mrs. Right into your life when you're sleeping with Mr. or Mrs. Wrong in your life. You'll never get into the place where God wants you to be if you're living in the wrong place where God does not want you to be. So, back to the story. David, will you have faith? Will you go and you attack the Philistines? And he says, yes, I will, and God provides. Now we find out this whole question and answer thing where all of a sudden David seems to be able to question God and get answers right back from God. How did that happen? What's new in the story? 
Verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Remember that one priest that escaped? He had an ephod, and you're going like, okay, what's an ephod? It's simply a priestly garment. Let me put you a picture of an ephod up here. That's what it looks like. And I want to take a moment, and let's zoom in onto the chest piece. Here with the chest piece, it has 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. But there was a particular ephod that was different. And that is the high priest's ephod. It had a chest piece, but it had a pouch in the chest piece. And in that pouch were two stones called the Urim and Thummim, which God had provided as a means to be able to ask questions and get answers directly from him. The scriptures say in Exodus. Also put the Urim and Thummim in the breast piece so they may be over Aaron's heart. Aaron was the high priest, by the way, at the time. Whenever he enters the presence of the Lord, thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Now, how do the Urim and Thummim work? To be honest, we don't have really specific details given in Scripture. From my reading and studying of this for the, most of my life, I can tell you what I have read. Some scholars believe it was two stones. They each had a white side and a black side, and you sort of threw it on the ground, and two whites was a yes, two blacks was a no, and a black and a white was undecided. That may be the way it worked, but we don't know if that's the way it worked. But we do know this that Saul in his sin had killed all the priests of God, cutting off any way of connecting with God. But God in his gracious, amazing providence allowed one priest to escape who had the high priest's ephod and he ran to David. And now David could ask questions to God and get answers from God faster than you can get something off your cell phone. Isn't it interesting how God works things out? to now actually have Saul's sin be a great blessing and encouragement for David. So we switch back at this point to Mount Gilboa with Saul. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah. And Saul said, Oh, God's given him into my hands, for he shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Aha! Finally a chance to get this guy. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now, it's interesting. The Philistines were going to destroy the city of Keilah, and David just saved them. Now, Saul is going to destroy the city of Keilah. Saul has become like the Philistines. And notice who he calls up to attack. It says, all the people to war. Instead of bringing his regular army to go attack David and his 400 little men, he calls up all the men in the entire nation. This is like trying to swat a fly using a bazooka and a hand grenade. It's a massive overkill, which shows you how desperate Saul has become at this point. And then we read, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. Ah, what should I do? And here we go. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. I've got to ask God a question. 
Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. So essentially, David approaches God in prayer through the high priest with his ephod. God, is this really true? Is Saul going to like conscript the entire men of the nation to come and destroy me in this little city? And if he comes, will these people that I just saved give me up? And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. I'm sure this broke David's heart at this point. He just risked his life to save these people. And here they will turn him into Saul and betray him. Imagine how that would have felt in his heart. Now, the scripture does not chastise the people of Keilah, and I think it's because they're terrified. They're just terrified of Saul. They've heard what Saul has done to the priests. They know he's vicious. They know he's a thug. They're afraid for their own lives and their own children. But still, this is heartbreaking to David, and he has only one option. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. Now the numbers are increasing. Notice this slightly. It was 400 men. Now it's up to 600 men. God is growing his militia. But it says they went wherever they could go. In other words, no other city, because they were afraid of Saul, would take them in. They just wandered in the wilderness. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Shoot, thwarted again. David gets away once more. Now, David remained in the stronghold in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. That's important to know that Saul continued to seek him every day. In case you missed it, Saul thought God had given David into his hand, but the writer of the book of 1 Samuel says, no, it's the opposite. God was protecting David and not giving David into Saul's hand. Now, these verses, they show us one way that God carried David through this extremely stressful time. When David prayed to God, God responded to him and God answered him through that priest and the ephod and guided and directed him. But I know what you're thinking. Wouldn't it be nice if we could pray to God and have God answer for us? Wouldn't it be nice if we had Abiathar and the ephod so we could ask God questions and know we'd hear and respond? Folks, we have something better than Abiathar and the, the ephod. 
we have Jesus as our high priest, according to the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews tells us that when we are in our times of desperation, when we are in our lowest moments, when we feel hopeless and we call out to Jesus, he hears our prayers and responds with grace to meet our time of need. Look what the scriptures say. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, that is Jesus. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are you at the point where you're wondering if your job's in question? Are you at the point if you're wondering if your health is going to make it? Are you at the end of your rope with your children, with your health? Call out to God through Jesus Christ. I don't know how he will answer you. It won't be with his audible voice, but the scriptures tell us we will find grace to help us in our time of need. Nothing has changed. The scriptures continue. God cares for his people in difficulty by providing godly friends. At this point, we must realize that David is sort of at the end of himself. We know that Saul is chasing him every day. He cannot rest the same place two nights in a row. David has 600 men with him, and there's a nationwide manhunt going on for David and some dame of hide-and-seek that's taking place. And we read this. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in Horish. Now, those geographical references just sort of run off the mouth, and they mean nothing to us. The wilderness of Ziph at Horish. But what means nothing to us meant a great deal for the ancient readers. Let me show you where this is located at. So you can see where Ziph is right there, and you can see where Horish is, and he's in the wilderness there. Now, we think wilderness, we think trees, mountains, maybe a nice running stream, a couple deer to shoot. That's not the wilderness. This is the wilderness. Dry, desert, no life, no water. This is where David and his men are hiding because Saul and his men would not want to ever go there. They couldn't survive there. Imagine how stressful that was for David, running around a place like that, moving from one place to another, trying to find food, trying to find water, not just for himself, but 600 men with him. Don't you think it ever crossed to his mind, you know, if I just gave myself up, all this heartache would be over for all these people. If I just left the land of Israel and went across the border, all this heartache and pain would be over. Don't you think David wanted to give up? Don't you think he was depressed and worn out and stressed living in a land like this? No, it's when he is here in this low moment of his life that we read this next verse. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. Jonathan, we've met him. David's best friend. David's encourager over the years. The man who stood beside him 
the man who believes he will be king and uh, will help him as he comes to be king. And there's a, a variety of practical things here that I think we can learn from this little verse. Like, first of all, Jonathan took the initiative and went to his friend in need. Folks, we must do the same. Jonathan was on Mount Gilboa. He was living in his father's castle, in the luxury, the comfort. And yet his friend Jonathan, or his friend David, was in the wilderness, in the desert, starving and dehydrating, fighting for his life. Jonathan knew that. Jonathan got up, left. He combed through that rough Judean wilderness until he found David, his friend. This was huge sacrifice. This was huge heartache. But my friend needs me, and I will be there. Isn't that what a true friend does? Sacrifices themselves to help others in their time of need? Secondly, we see this. Jonathan didn't need to be told of David's discouragement. He cared enough about David to sense his discouragement. In the first service, I was preaching this, and I was talking to some kids back and forth. I said, did you know that David couldn't text? I mean, like, he couldn't text and tell anybody, man, it really stinks in the, in the wilderness here. I can barely get a good cell connection. You know, what Jonathan did is using his imagination, he put himself into his friend's shoes. He knew what that wilderness was like. Day after day, Hour after hour, he said, I can feel his pain. I can imagine how this hurts. And when he sensed the pain, he responded to the pain. Some of you say, well, if I knew a friend was in need, I'd be there for them in a heartbeat. But they don't tell me those things. Use your imagination to put yourself into their shoes and you will have the Holy Spirit tell you what they need. That's what Jonathan did. And he went to help his friend. It's like Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. When Jonathan came, the question became, becomes, well, how did Jonathan encourage David? I mean, was it just like, hey, buddy, we've missed each other. Good time to catch up. Good to be together. You know, let's just you know, hang out around the campfire and tell stories and make s'mores. That's, that's how I'm going to encourage you. No, it says this. And he strengthened his hand in God. What does that mean? Rather than just doing the buddy-buddy thing, what Jonathan did is he went back to the promises of God and he said, you know, David, God has promised that you will be king. God will keep his word. You need to remember that right now, that God will not fail you. Don't you think David might have lost sight of that in the heartache, in the discouragement, in the depression? But God sent Jonathan to remind him of what he needed to know what would always prove true. You see, the thing is that it, when it comes to us, when we have a friend in need, if we say, hey, I'll always be there for you, I'll always be there to help you, you know what? We're going to fail. I guarantee you we will fail. But God will not fail. If God has promised something in his word, it will prove true, and that is 100% 
guaranteed. So we find, it says this, And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. And Saul my father also knows this. You shall be king over Israel because God has promised that. That was his word. Now folks, it works the same way today. When you have a friend and they are going through hard times and you've used your imagination and you can sense their discouragement and you go to them, don't just say, hey, I'm here for you. Hey, buddy, we're just together. You know, it's like good to be together again because you and your promises will fail, just like me. Bring them God's promises, the promises that are true for them in Scripture and they will never fail. That is where your hope is found. In first service, sitting right there was Steve Andreessen. Maybe you guys know Steve. About two weeks ago, his wife passed away, and I was with him for periods of time, and he sat next to her side in the hospital. Steve is an amazing, a godly man. He wouldn't leave his wife's side. Faithful all the way to the end, like a real man of God should be. And how could I encourage Steve? How can Steve encourage himself in that time as his wife is getting ready to take her last breath? Not in my promises, but it's in God's promises. We open the scripture. We put our finger in the book, and these are some of the promises we read. Philippians chapter 1, 23. For I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He said, when my wife closes her eyes and breaks her last breath, she will be with Jesus. God has promised that'll be far better than anything she's experienced in this life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that our earthly home is, that is, our earthly home is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. She's going to our heavenly home. God has promised that, and I know it is true. That is where my hope in this darkest moment is found. Now, we read this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. This is the third covenant, by the way, they've made, and it seems to be just a repeat of the other covenants, that they would be faithful to one another and to their progeny. But here's what we need to know. I do not know how close, and we do not know how close David came to giving up in that desert wilderness, how discouraged he became. But what we do know is God helped him through that time by giving him a good and godly Christian friend who reminded him of the promises of God that will always prove true. And the same is true for us today. This brings us to our third point. God cares for his people in difficulty by providential rescues. The camera goes back up north to Saul. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish and on the hill country of Hakalith with his south of the Jeshimon? In other words, we know David's exact location on the hill, what side of the hill he's on. We can give Saul the right coordinates. And what do you think they're looking for? 
A little financial kickback from their old Saul buddy. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. They know that Saul will butcher David and his 600 men just like he did the priests of Nob. Yet they're willing to give him up. And Saul said, Oh, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. You think the Lord's really going to bless this? Go and make more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. A little braggadocia part at the end there. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. In other words, the scouts went first. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arba to the south of the Jeshimon, which means exactly where they said he would be. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard this, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Let me show you where this is on the map. You can see here, just looking at the topography issues, that that area has a mountain in it. So what happens is David has gone into this mountainous region and Saul is chasing him into the mountainous region. That's what we need to know. And it says here, Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. They are really close. Now, I didn't necessarily see this in the English, but as I looked at some of the Hebrew scholars, they said that what's going on here is a pincer move. Apparently, David and his men are higher up on the mountain. Saul, with his very large army, realizes David's up there, and they are trying to surround the mountain. And if he can get the whole other side, you know, both columns connected, he will cut David and his men off from escape. <coughs> trap them on the mountain and slowly pick them off one by one. That is what he's attempting to do. And as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, the pincer is almost closed. A messenger came to Saul saying, Oh, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. Oh, who would believe it? just the right time because David remember has, or Saul has made a general conscription of all the men in the nation to go get David the nation is completely unprotected the Philistines said oh perfect timing let's go attack and go into Israel Saul realizes he has to leave immediately or he will not have a kingdom to come back to at just the right time the Philistines attack David, Saul's men have to retreat and David and his men are saved who do you think orchestrated that one? God and his providential timing. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. The one that was renamed for that miraculous escape. Now, folks, this is not just true about how God's work in, God worked in David's life, but isn't it true about how God works in our life? 
Have you ever had that time where it looked like everything was going to fall apart around you? Disaster was going to be completely on you? And then God, in answer to your prayers, came to the rescue at just the last moment. Anybody had that happen? Like all of us. That's God. That's God saving and protecting his servants. Just like he does for David, he does for you and me. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of the En Gedi. Now this is not the end of the story, but this is just the end of this chapter in the story. Because the center of this text says what continues to happen. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. Now, what are the things we need to apply from this? It simply is this. Number one, while God's faithfulness was never in doubt, David's faith was being tested every day as he ran for his life. God allowed these hard times in David's life not because he didn't love him, but because he did love him. God was proving and improving David's faith. And hear this, God also loves us. He allows hard times into our life to prove and to improve our faith as well. Did you realize that? God was refining David's faith, maturing his faith, teaching him perseverance in his faith. He's doing the same time thing in your life. Look what it says in James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith will produce steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are intended by God to mature us. Also, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by what? Various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is refined by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. When we go through trials and we draw closer to Jesus, that proves our faith genuine. When you go through trials and people fall away from Jesus, that proves their faith was faith, was fake. So God uses trials in life to prove our faith and to improve our faith, just like he did for David. And in those trials, he doesn't leave us alone. He answers our prayers like he did for David. He gives us godly friends who hold us up and encourage us with the promises of God that will always prove true. And he uses his providence to save our lives often at the last minute so we know he is the one who cares, loves, and provides. Amen? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your scripture. Thank you for how your scripture, as we look at our lives through the lens of David's life, teaches us why you allow us to go through trials and difficulties and your good purposes in them and how your scripture teaches us how you carry us through those difficult times. When the wheels are falling off in our life, may we not think that you don't love us, but may we realize that you do love us and may we look to see how you will carry us through.
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.